I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On today's podcast, we're beginning season two of The Leftovers as we look at episode one, Axis Mundi. My name is Justin Hamilton, and there's no safer place than here at Big Squid. Welcome to the Big Squid Podcast. Uh, I know we were meant to go straight into The Leftovers, and that was actually the initial plan. I know that there was uh, a podcast where I kind of flagged the idea that maybe I'd have a little bit of a break, but I was just keen to get into it. And then I rewatched the opening episode of Season 2, and I'll be completely honest with you, I underestimated and had completely forgotten how dense this opening is. There's just so much going on, and there's so much new stuff. And I remembered everything that happened in this episode. There was not one scene that I didn't remember, but I kind of remembered it spread out over the 10 episodes. And when one thing after another happened in this one, I was like, holy shit, like, this is full on. Like, as an example, the goat being killed by Jerry was something that I thought just kind of popped up in like the third or fourth episode but having it plumb in the middle of this opening ep was just mind-blowing so I had to kind of slow down for a second and it's not a bad thing it just kind of allowed me to catch my breath and it's been a full-on few months that is not a complaint in any way especially coming off the back of 2020 but it is one of those things where the year started slowly and then out of nowhere there have been three different TV jobs, one I've already done, one I'm working on at the moment, and there's another one that's coming up soon. Uh, There's been live work, there's been a little bit of flying interstate, there's a couple of other projects that I'll tell you about soon, one in particular that I think you'll be really into, I think you'll be really excited 
by this new project. But that's in the future for now. I just wanted to apologize to you if you were keen to get right into it. And I hope that some of the insight that I bring to Axis Mundi will make up for it. And also, we have a little chat with Alexi Toliopoulos about this episode, so that's a little bonus as well. Thank you for all the kind feedback on these episodes. All the messages that I've been receiving are really interesting. I'm really enjoying the people who have never watched this show before and hearing what they think is going to come up or what they think is going on. Uh, it's interesting to hear the the questions that you ask as well. And then there's the people who are re-watching it who are noticing things that they'd never noticed before, which is kind of where I'm at as well. Like I've watched this series, this is the third time I've watched this. And even on this third time, I guess because I'm watching it with slightly different eyes and trying to think about it for the podcast, I'm just picking up on little bits and pieces. So thank you very much for the feedback on this. And also, damn, you guys were excited to have Charlie Clawson talking cult movies with me. Like, if you missed that podcast, it was released uh, like only last week and it's easy to find. But uh, you guys were really into that as well. So I am listening and, you know, Charlie's a busy guy, but we will do more of that for you as well. Uh, for those of you living in Sydney, we have our live Big Squid Show on May 2nd with the theme, Can We Still Enjoy It? There's lots of people out there who have entertained us but also let us down as human beings. So we're going to discuss those artists and see if we can come to some conclusions while lamenting their awful mistakes that potentially ruin their work. <laughs> we'll also be discussing personal stories and how we use them to entertain people even when people object to the topics. It is going to be a lot of fun having these discussions in this environment, and the cast includes Richard Feidler, Alice Fraser, Rove McManus, Angela Fouapierre, AJ Lamarck, Ben Elwood, Georgia Mooney, and Alexi Toliopoulos. And I've also added the very special guest of Tom Gleeson coming off the back of his sold-out show at the Enmore Theatre. You can find tickets for this show at giantdwarf.com.au and I can tell you from all the stuff that everyone shared with me that they're going to talk about, it's going to be interesting and it's going to be fun. And it's, you know, pretty cheap as well. So if you're around, please come and uh, check out the show. Also, for those of you who'd like to discuss the leftovers and any other topics, please come over and join our Facebook page. We have the open page that lets you know when new podcast blogs and short stories are available. And we also have the private conversation page where anyone can join. It's just a safe place to discuss what we're enjoying, free of spoilers. So if you have thoughts that you want to share or see what everyone else is talking about, come over to Facebook and say hi. Now we're going to start Season 2 of The Leftovers and things are about to get even crazier as we deep dive into Episode 1, Axis Mundi. I love this town. Now everywhere I look, all I see is what's gone. I can sit around and cry about how the world ended. Or I can start it up again. Do you want to get out of here? Out of the restaurant? No. Not the restaurant. When I heard about this place, I'd be lying if I told you I understood it. But I understand it now. Is it real? It's real. Through hell, 
Flames flicker in a cave, bodies huddled around the fire to keep warm during the cold night. This moment is taking place thousands of years ago, and these people are the beginnings of what we will eventually become. A pregnant woman wakes and walks to the lake to relieve herself. She gazes at the moon, lost in awe under the light of that heavenly body. There is a sudden roar as the landscape comes alive, and when the pregnant woman turns around, she sees that all of the people who were asleep in the cave with her have been crushed under fallen rock. One minute they were there, the next minute they are gone forever. She is incredulous and begins to dig, but her water breaks and now there's no time. She's alone giving birth to her baby, the moon looking down impassively. The next morning she cleans and feeds a newborn. The next night she stares at the cave, wondering if any of her tribe will return. The following day, she notices there's smoke in the distance and eventually she decides she has to move on. She watches a hawk soar overhead and she clasps at her necklace as she watches it glide through the air. What significance does the hawk hold for her? She wanders with her baby and finds the hawk's nest full of eggs. Maybe this is what the hawk represented, a place to find food to help sustain her and her baby. Or maybe it meant something else. Maybe this is the beginning of religious belief. She climbs the tree and feeds, but when she looks down at the ground, a rattlesnake has slithered over her baby. She climbs down and attacks the snake, killing it immediately, but the snake bites deep into her arm and delivers its poison. She crosses the watering hole, but the poison is coursing through her veins and she slowly falls to the ground, her baby held tight to her heaving chest. Above, the eagle continues to soar as the new mother dies. Another cave woman comes along and finds the baby. She picks it up, looks at the dead mother, and takes the baby with her as her own. We look at the dead mother, and the camera pans to one side, and it is now centuries in the future at the same place, and three teenage women play in the cold watering hole. They're loud and playful as they watch a man collecting water further away from them. There's a sign that says, don't collect the water, but the man appears to be doing so for scientific reasons. And one of the girls, Evie, collects water for her unknown reasons. The laughing girls jump in their car and drive to Evie's house in silence, their lack of talking and fun in contrast to what we just witnessed. Evie arrives home and gives her brother Michael the water while her mum, Erica, prepares breakfast. They wake their dad, John, from a deep sleep in a playful manner. 
This family is the Murphys, and we will soon become entwined in their world. During breakfast, we hear a noise, like a grasshopper or something. John jumps up, determined to find it, and his family roll their eyes. This is quite clearly an obsession for him. Michael leaves home and rides his pushbike through the town garden, a place that is also known as Miracle, because it somehow didn't have one person disappear on the day of the departure. He rides down the road past a massive crack in the road and arrives in the city centre, a hive of activity. He sets up his stalls where he places water from the lake and little test tubes. In the middle of the city centre is a tower with a man living up the top. He looks like he's been there for a long time. Michael takes him food that he accesses through a rope and a bucket and he passes on a letter that he wants Michael to post to a David Burton in Sydney, Australia. A bus pulls up and the people who arrive are Catholics, Jews, physically disabled, blind. It is a mix of people who have faith and people who are searching for faith. Why are they here in Jarden? Everyone is coming to the town of miracles, looking for answers, curious to know why this place was spared. John visits an old school friend, Isaac, a man who claims he can glimpse the future by reading your palm print. Stuck on the walls all around him are the handprints of people who have visited him before. John asks Isaac to read his palm, but Isaac doesn't like what he reads and at first refuses to tell him what he saw. He's nervous. He knows John isn't there because he's a believer. John tells Isaac he's just there doing his job as a fireman, explaining what he needs to do to his house to make certain it lives up to fire regulations. But Isaac knows there is something else going on. He asks Isaac to confess that what he is doing is bullshit, but Isaac tells him what he does is real. Something bad is going to happen to you, says Isaac. John, be careful. John smiles an unfriendly smile. Evie and her friends attend choir practice and exchange knowing looks as they sing about Jarden being a place of miracles. Later, she pitches softballs to her dad. Knock, knock, she says. John at first doesn't understand what she's talking about. He eventually asks, who's there? Broken pencil. Broken pencil who? Doesn't matter, says Evie. It's pointless. They both laugh. Later that night, John goes to the fire station with his crew. They dress and speak in a code only they understand. They head to Isaac's place and they tell him to get out. But when he refuses, they throw him through the window and set fire to his home. They then put out the blaze that they began. Isaac goes to hospital to have his cuts and abrasions looked after. Erica is his nurse. She is cool to his plight. You tell your husband I meant what I said. There's no avoiding it, says Isaac. Early the next morning, Erica wakes up, slips her hearing aids in and goes for a run. She finds herself in the forest where she approaches a tree that has a handheld trowel in front of it. She uses it to dig up a shoebox. She opens it and inside is a bird, alive. It looks at Erica and flies away, leaving her alone. The Murphys attend church and watch as Michael reads to the congregation. John takes notice of the words, but before he can think about it, the minister tells everyone he's going away for hip surgery and that there will be a new person looking after the church in his absence. It is Matt Jamison, and he's there with his wife, who sits silently in a chair to one side. John introduces himself to Matt. He's curious what story he was about to tell when the minister cut him off. Matt just says he was talking about how happy he is to be in town, but John doesn't believe this story. 
The Murphy family goes to a diner for some food and John questions Michael on why he read out that particular passage. Michael explains he didn't pick that passage. It was the one he was given to read. Before they can discuss this anymore, a man walks in with a sheet of plastic and a goat. He lays the plastic down, puts the goat on it, and he cuts the goat's throat and then drags out the dead carcass on the plastic. The people who live in Jarden don't react. It looks like this has happened many times before. Later that night, John watches the news where the actor Mark Lynn Baker, one of the cast of Perfect Strangers who had all departed, has actually turned up in Mexico. The actor is confronted, but before we see the rest of the story, John goes to place his bowl in the sink. He drops his spoon into the drain and he stares into the dark hole, wondering if he should put his hand down there. Didn't Isaac say something bad was going to happen? While his daughter and wife are communicating through sign language, Michael walks into the kitchen, removes the spoon, and is soon heading back to the city to give food to the man at the top of the tower. After he does this, he rides to a small caravan that is tucked away in the woods. An older African-American man appears at the door. Would you like to pray? Michael asks. The man lets Michael inside. The next morning, John finds a baked apple pie on the doorstep. He eyes it suspiciously, and Erica makes fun of him for thinking it was possibly poison. He sees a family pull up out the front and begin moving into the house next door. It is Kevin, Nora, Jill, and Holly Wayne's baby who they've christened Lily. Kevin and John make eye contact and give half-hearted waves to each other. John decides he's going to invite them over to his house for dinner. It's his birthday. They may as well be neighbourly. At the Murphy's house, Evie is provocative and asks Jewel why they have a black baby. This is the same girl who runs with her friends naked through the forest. She has a side that even her family don't realise is inside of her. Did your mum fuck a black man, she asks. Michael is mortified, but Jewel laughs. She isn't easily provoked. Both families are feeling each other out. We can tell there are tensions in the Murphy family, but we also know what Kevin, Nora and Jill have been through recently. John is curious about the bump on Kevin's head and wonders what happened when he appeared to vague out in the kitchen. In turn, Kevin is curious when John freely admits that he spent time in jail for attempted murder. Michael and Evie walk out with a birthday cake, but Evie drops it as she has an epileptic moment. By the end of the night, John holds Kevin's hand a little too tightly and tells him he's going to look forward to getting to know him better. Evie is picked up by her friends and they go out. But before she leaves, she hands her father his birthday present. She tells him not to open it now because it is the greatest present he'll ever receive and she doesn't want him to make a scene. Later that night, there's a rumbling and the earth tremors and shakes. John grabs Erica and Michael and leads them to places of safety, but they suddenly realise Evie hasn't come home. They make phone calls and Evie's two friends didn't make it home either. They ring a phone, but there is no answer. Michael suggests they go down to the watering hole because that's where they like to hang out. When they arrive, they find the car turned on, the radio playing, the doors locked, Evie's phone inside the car. There's dirty marks all over the window. Michael calls to his father. The watering hole has completely disappeared. Fish gasping on the rocks. The moon above, indifferent to the screams of John, calling out to his daughter. So the first thing you notice with this episode is the change in the credits. I loved the Max Richter score and thought it was the correct balance of bombast and over-the-top humour. But I think most people felt it pitched the show too far in the depressing stakes. As I've said earlier... I didn't find this series depressing at all on my first watch, but that is because I was possibly quite depressed. 
<laughs> so, you know, it, it all made sense to me. On the subsequent rewatch, I can see where it is tricky for some people, but I come from the camp that not all entertainment is designed to make you feel happy, happy, joy, joy. Sometimes it's supposed to engage you with other emotions, and this series, while bringing moments of catharsis, does engage in the somber side of life at times. This new opening sums up not only the mix of humour and tragedy alongside the mundane and the cosmic reality of the show, but it also shows us how people may have experienced the sudden departure. The Skydiver is a particularly disorientating image. But the song also explains what the creators have long talked about. There's no point worrying about where anyone went. We're here with the survivors. This is their story. Let's focus on them. The title of this episode, Axis Mundi, is a Latin term in astronomy that refers to the axis of the Earth between the celestial poles, and in 20th century speak, it refers to any mythological concept that represents the connection between heaven and earth or the higher and lower realms. As Reza Aslan, the religious scholar who was brought on this season to be a consultant on all manners of faith, he had to say this about the Axis Mundi, it is an ancient thought that goes back thousands of years. The idea is there are parts of this planet that serve as a cosmic pole around which the entire universe circles. As an example, the pyramids of Giza, the temple in Jerusalem, the Kaaba in Mecca. It's not that people put something there to make it sacred. It is that the land itself was already sacred for some mysterious reason, and that's why you put something there. The new town we find ourselves in is an Axis Mundi, and the prologue shows us this. This is a place full of history, known and unknown. Life and death has played out around this watering hole before written records. This woman's life is a tragedy nobody will remember, but it is still a tragedy. She experiences her version of the departure, where she is with her people, and then in one moment they are gone forever. She stays close to the cave for way too long because she can't comprehend how to move on at first. We can also reflect on the baby being taken from the dead woman to be looked after by a new woman as a parallel between Nora now looking after Lily in the present. What happened before will happen again and again and again. Jarden is a sacred site, but possibly not for the reasons most people believe. It's a big swing to start the new season here so far in the past, and it doesn't stop here either. We're introduced to a whole new family who in many ways mirror the Garvey family. Instead of a policeman, we have a fireman. Instead of a psychiatrist, we have a doctor. We have two teenage daughters redefining themselves in this world. We have two young men, one who doubles down on his faith, another searching for it. The Murphy family are familiar to us within a couple of scenes. We can easily understand the dynamic. John has a level of aggression to him that is not dissimilar to Kevin, but John's feels more focused and I reckon a little bit angrier as well. He isn't a believer and he will burn down anyone who claims that they are. We've already seen that a family didn't have to experience anyone departing to fall apart and now we have a whole town to view through that same lens. While Mapleton felt haunted and Jarden feels much more relaxed, there's an air of certainty, an air of routine that must be adhered to. The difference between Kevin's anger and John's is that Kevin turns a lot of his violence toward himself, while John isn't afraid to take it out on those he sees as being guilty of telling lies. Yet they both harbour similar doubts. It only takes a suggestion of something bad about to happen, and John is filled with a lot of doubt, incapable of even slipping his hand down into a hole to find something as commonplace as a spoon. For a man who has rejected any concept of the supernatural or faith, it doesn't take much to have him incepted with doubt. 
If you then go straight to his son, who is not only a devout Christian, but also a practicing one, he takes food to the man up the tower. He doesn't lie about the local water he's selling to visitors to the town, who would, you know, gladly buy it if they believed it would cure what ails them. He reads at the local church. He's mortified by his sister's language to strangers. He hasn't lost his faith, but... What he's struggling to understand is how everything that occurred can now be applied to his belief system. Erica having a hearing disability is fascinating. By having hearing difficulties when she's not using her hearing aids, that must mean she lives a rich and insular life. At this point, Erica feels like she exists somewhere between her husband and son. You know, maybe someone who's wrestling with her faith while exhibiting a level of cynicism to anyone who claims their connection to the supernatural. And then there's Evie, who is in many ways unknowable. She oscillates between typical teenage girl uh, actions and approaches to things, and then there's this side of her that is a complete mystery. The way she knowingly messes with the man at the waterhole in the opening scene and giggles and laughs with her friends, and then you get that really silent and deadly car ride. She appears to be comfortable with her faith as she attends church, but she asks Jill a question that's so rude, the only reason it doesn't land in a more awkward way is because Jill is so comfortable with who she is at this point. Also, watching the three girls running through the woods naked lets us imagine how ancient people used to live their lives in this place. Or, if you really want to follow the thought through, the innocence of the Garden of Eden, which is appropriate for Evie, whose name is a diminutive of Eve and in Hebrew means life. The symbology leaves uh, a lot for us to ponder, especially in that scene. And don't forget that epilepsy has been seen as mystical in previous centuries as a way of seeing visions and having a direct link to God. What does it mean for Evie? Who knows at this point? I have thoughts, but once again, I probably won't share them at this point because, as I told you, I remembered everything from this episode, but I thought they were spread out a little bit more. And so now I'm starting to question uh, just exactly where I'm at with this uh, series, you know, just where everything fits in together. But I'm guessing at some point we will have a reason to have more of a discussion about this. Uh, To finish the episode with the watering hole disappearing, and I hope you appreciate that even with all the signs around saying that it is an offence to take the water, it appears nobody, not even a natural or supernatural event, gives much heed to this law. But with the water disappearing and now the girls, we are left with many questions about where the Murphy story will take them. At the very least, what we have here are a family that has seen what happened to the rest of the world with the departed, and each person has doubled down on their beliefs it makes sense you find solace that way when you can anchor yourself to a belief system it isn't just the main characters who are following this course of action jerry the man who sacrificed the goat to board onlookers represents the idea that many residents believe they were saved because there was something special about them In an interview, Reza Aslan explained that on the day of the departure, Jerry suddenly appeared in the city without explanation and sacrificed a goat. And at first, people were horrified. Then the departure happened, and so now he has free reign because the residents are too afraid to do anything about it. Poor goats. Like, geez, what a bum rap for those guys, right? 
This also speaks to the strange man living up the top of the tower. Aslan also explains that this is a very old tradition. The recluses who stay up in high towers, there is evidence of these people that you can find in paintings from the 13th and 14th centuries. In Eastern tradition, there are ascetics renouncing the world with followers or residents, feeding and clothing them, and their place as a testimony to the illusion of reality. In Western traditions, it's seen as a monastic separation from society. Jerry is one of the people who descended upon Jarden before it was turned into a federal territory. Whatever we know about Jerry, and it isn't much, but he does need to contact someone in Australia, and that's mysterious in itself. Big shout out for Australia! Let's not forget the characters we already know and love. We have a few mysteries to look out for, including what was Matt about to say when he was stopped at the church? Oh, didn't feel good though, right? Why are Kevin, Nora and Jewel there? What's going on with Lily? What is that bump on Kevin's head when Kevin just vagued out at the Murphy house and John had to call him back? You know he wasn't lost in thought, but what was actually going on? That probably doesn't feel like it'll be very good. These questions will be answered along with many others in the next episode, so you won't have long to wait. This is a series that while the mystery is unknowable and unanswerable the fact is is that everything else is paid off as it goes along uh, but also uh, just while i think about it what's going on with mark lynn baker from perfect strangers turning up in mexico pretending he'd departed along with the rest of the cast this always just seemed like one of the funniest jokes to me from season one but by having him appear in this episode it not only adds to the joke but it continues to add a little bit of definition to the world building there's more to discuss, but I don't want to give anything away for later down the track. As I said, I'm just a little bit underconfident now. I got so much wrong from the first episode in my memory, so we'll be careful as we move forward. Uh, what we do know is this place has dealt with earthquakes before and they have wiped out a whole tribe. They've left scars literally carved into the ground and road and now have made the water disappear. And for now, none of these hold a candle to the metaphoric earthquakes that are about to affect the town. The disappearance of Evie and the arrival of the prodigal son, Kevin Garvey. Let's bring in Alexi before we get into the Squid Bits part of the show. So for an episode of TV that I have already seen a couple of times uh, throughout life and have thought about heaps... I literally just rewatched the episode for us to discuss, and I don't know what the fuck it is about this series, but I'm feeling pretty emotional while I'm sitting here talking to you. And I, how did you feel rewatching this episode? And was this the first time you'd rewatched it since uh, the first time you saw it? This was the first time uh, rewatching it for me, um, and I would say my main feeling after re-watching the first episode of the second series of Leftovers is surprise. I, in my mind, remembered, like, the prehistoric woman sequence being a full episode. Like, I thought that was, like, oh. almost an entire episode. But then I couldn't believe it was only nine minutes long. I, I thought it was going to be the entire episode, and then we meet everyone in, uh, like, towards the end of it. But uh, I was surprised by But then also so surprised that we are with the new Miracle family, uh, the Murphy family, for almost entirety of the episode with them leading it. Oh, it's a crazy 
episode because the thing to take into context with all of this is that the first season didn't rate that mm. well. It was critically adored. Yep. Its its reviews are phenomenal. Didn't get any Emmy nominations at any point. Uh, was not a big ratings winner. At this point, when I was first watching it, I still didn't know anyone else who was engaged with this TV series mm. outside of my mum, and I was the one who introduced her to that. And it is an audacious beginning, Absolutely. because not only do you get that nine minutes of, of the cavewoman story, but it's then, I looked at the timer, you're like 48 minutes into the episode when Kevin and Nora mm-hmm. turn up, and you're like... I remember the first time I watched it, I was thinking, are we? Are they not in this series? Yeah. I'd seen their names in the credits, but is, well, I thought, well, is this a fake out? Like, what's, you know, the, the opening music is different to the last season. So are like, the credits what, what, what's themselves. Like, everything's, it's so different. Yes. Yes. And it feels to me like Lindelof does this. One of the best openings to a TV series of all time for me was the opening of season two of Lost where the previous season you had finished wondering what uh, Jack and Locke were looking down Mm. into that uh, into that hole and then you were like the second season starts off and it's just like some guy listening to some vinyl yeah. working out kind of injecting himself with some stuff and next minute there's an explosion and then he's quickly getting dressed and setting up a gun and then you follow the camera panning all the way up and you realize that's what john and uh, john Locke and uh, jack are looking down into and this goes even one step further because it's such a an abstract idea mm. And what, what did you make of uh, the the meaning behind the cave woman and why we would start there? I remember my first watch of this and just being so swept up in like this prehistoric story because I love stories set in prehistoric times. I made a short film that was like a fantasy film set in prehistoric times because I find them like so fascinating. I love movies like Quest for Fire. I think it's just something that is so rich and like very rarely explored. And I remember thinking, like, I was all in on this show at this point. And I was, like, binging them. Like, I'm going through the seasons, like, day by day, basically. And I just remember (laughs) thinking, like, wow, this is so audacious. My thought was they were, like, going to connect it all together. Like, I thought we're going to meet God or something like this at this point. <laughs> and I thought that, like, you know, this it, it's kind of like an allegorical story to what's happened in the present day in this world, where she is, like, a survivor where everyone else has been wiped out in her, in her tribe. It's just her and her child, not unlike the, like, rapturous event that we have at the center of the leftovers. So she has to, like, live by herself without her tribe and make her own way in the world much like the survivors in in the present day but i also thought like the way that story wraps up with her passing away due to having to save her child from like a rattlesnake and then the child being an orphan and then picked up and then taken on uh by a new tribe of prehistoric people i was like in my head thinking that this is going to be the origins of storytelling like this is going to be proper a hero's journey and it's going to tie into like those jungian ideas of like uh myth making and storytelling and how they evolve and i was like that's going to tie into kevin garvey kevin garvey is going to be like in this line of uh 
first survivors or something like that. And then I was like, no, it doesn't really address that. It's just kind of like an allegorical story that it's geographically <laughs> located in the same place. But I was like going crazy, going like, okay, this is Jungian. I'm reading into the symbolism of this. This is going to be freaking uh, Joseph Campbell type stuff. And it was like, no, 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 none of that stuff. Well, I think that's what I love the most about this series is that it gives you room to project all these thoughts mm. and allows you to play in that area. But also, are you incorrect with that completely? Like, mm. it is kind of what they're hinting at. And there is, it is interesting, the idea of, uh, you know, the survivor and the mm person who's left alone without getting ahead of ourselves uh, because there's people who are listening to this podcast who are watching The Leftovers for the first time but in a way you think about how this series ends in series three and the story that's told at the end and you go well is there is there a place where the opposite Mm. happened you know where (laughs) there was only the woman with the baby inside the cave you know and it is one of the great kind of pans in TV for me where you are in this world. You can tell that she has a, a level of awe mm. to her. You know, it might not be what we see in, uh, you know, organised religion, but she's looking at the moon yeah. and seeing, uh, you know, an idea of what her beliefs are. You see her clutching. She's got the feather in her hair mm. with, the, with the eagle flying over. So she has her belief yeah. systems as well and her sense of awe. And it's it's a tragic story. Mm. Like, for a show that had been, you know, criticised by some people saying, oh, it's a bit depressing in that first yeah. season, and then next minute there's a fucking rattlesnake around a baby, yeah. you're like, Jesus, shit. But when it pans over and then suddenly you realise we've jumped how many thousands of years yeah. and now we're in present day and the three girls just playing in in the in the water and laughing and being kind of knowing it's it's kind of like their version of the the jump cut in 2001 mm. isn't it except it's just a little bit slower and just kind of gradually eases you into the modern times but i have to ask you what is it you said that you love the prehistoric kind of storytelling and that kind of stuff uh, so why is it specifically something that appeals to you is it because it's uh, like, is it just hard to get your head around because it's how did we come from there to here, or what is it that is so attractive to I you? I think it's all of that stuff, and I think it's such like a rich storytelling world and like experience because there's limitations of like you know language do you want to play into like language limitations? Uh, and it's like exploration of like who we are like how we relate to myth how we relate to uh storytelling itself how we relate to religion how we relate to uh each other like it's so primordial and it's i think it's like i i really get excited about like the origins of man and like the origins of society and i think the way to do it is like before society existed before there was even a concept of what mankind was and i think that I, I don't know. And I also just love aesthetically, like, you know, big creatures. You've got, like, you know, yeah. megalodons and stuff like that, mammoths, saber-toothed tigers. All that stuff freaking rocks. I love it. But then also <laughs> just, like, you know, costuming. Like, you know, there's so much interesting in costuming. So I just, I've always yeah. had a fascination, fascination with those and, like, you know, the origins, like those caves of forgotten dreams, the Werner Herzog documentary about the yep. French caves where it has, like, the early cave paintings and stuff. That's all, like, the origins yeah. of 
of art and cinema because they have like those caves have like movement to them when you put like uh you know a, fl- a naked flame in there they feel yeah. like the first films if in a way as well so i just um i'm obsessed with it like i think it's great and there's only like a half dozen movies that are like even attempt to like talk about that stuff is it because that there is uh if you don't get it right you're going to get it really wrong like do you know what i mean mm. like it's not something that you can get most of it right and then have a few things that are like oh yeah but then you move on like this is one of those things where if you get this wrong it's going to be a lot of actors looking like idiots. Yeah, that's part of it. That is a big part of it as well. <laughs> and that's the part that I like. And I'm like, yeah, I would love to do more comedy in that kind of thing because that's what you can yeah. play with. Yeah. You want to see the uh, Dennis Quaid, Ringo Starr movie? Yeah, Have you Cave ever seen Man. that? I've seen. I've probably seen every single movie that fits this bill because there's so few of them and I'm desperate for them. I, yeah, I don't want to brag. But I saw that at the cinema. Wow. I reckon that will never play a retro screening of it for me to ever see on film. I've only seen it on a crappy YouTube version. Yeah. That someone illegally uploaded. Yeah. And and good on that person for doing the Lord's work. Um, I, you must have loved then also the, uh, the gentleman Isaac mm. who feels he can read palms. And we start in these uh, cave people times mm. and then the... the Prince of the Hands all throughout his house, yeah. which kind of calls back to that as well. The Murphys are fascinating because we, we see this moment happen where the woman, you know, barely uh, protects her baby and ends up dying in, 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 in saving her. And then we come to this place that is... N- it's become considered a holy place because statistically, through some anomaly... They didn't have anyone depart. Mm. And now everyone's adding their belief systems to why that is. And then we come to the Murphys. And once again, a roll of the dice with the start of a season. Because I'm not particularly certain that they are likable enough. (laughs) You know, like there's some really full-on things going, especially with the dad who has this air of violence just underneath his skin and I know we've seen him break into the house and burn it down but even just the way he holds himself you know when Evie makes the dumb joke to him when when it first happens his reaction's a little bit like why are you telling me a joke (laughs) (laughs) and you're like oh doesn't this family seem like fun as well what did you think of the Murphys as you were watching them they're so curious right I think this show is so good at introducing you to mysteries because you meet this family and you're like immediately you're like who are they because I expect to be brought back to the characters I've known for the last season so you're already like brought into it as if it were a mystery and then there's so many like little loose ends to like their conversations and stuff and at the around the breakfast table but then we follow the father as he like goes on to like this bizarre day of like getting his palm read and then going in with his fireman friends and like basically tearing this guy out of town and you like you find like that this family is kind of like ingrained in the society of this town in a very interesting way where then you know Regina King's character is the nurse that like helps this guy get back together after he's been he's like been torn apart by her husband and then the kids there's mysteries with the kids where like the son is like involved in the church and the daughter is 
in herself completely mysterious with her like epileptic kind of like standing up fit that she goes through but then also her relationship with her friends and like everything about it is so interesting and so well played because it's completely human like they're all they do seem like your regular dysfunctional family that still functions still love each other but uh but because it's in this world of the leftovers everything is questionable yes that's it you know i think lindelof says early on you know if People, if 2% of the population disappeared, then there must be 2% of this world that has something supernatural going yep. on, which is just enough for you to sit there and go, okay, what is happening here? The previous episode where the guilty remnant finishing off season one put up all of those mannequins mm. dressed as the people who departed is a scene from a horror movie. Yep. And we get it again in this, which is a striking scene, which I remember the first time I saw it, I thought, what's going on here? And it is after the girls have been dipping in the pool and they get into the car and they've gone from laughing and talking and then we just watch them in silence for about what is it 40 seconds just driving in silence not looking at each other not talking Mm. and it's suddenly like hang on i thought i just had a bit of an idea on who these people are and then suddenly this is happening and then once they're back mingling with people again yeah, they seem to be fine, but you notice all the looks that they're giving each other, and the and the there always seems to be more to the smile. Mm. Like when they're at the choir and they're singing about how great it is that nobody departed here, but they're all kind of they got something going yeah. on, and that's a fascinating choice, really early once again, and that that adds to what you're saying, the the mystery of everything that goes on in The Leftovers. Absolutely. And I think as well, the changing of the setting from, uh, from, uh, what is that, Mapleton? Yeah. Mapleton, Mapleton, New York, York. to now being in the town of Miracle, as it is renamed in Texas. I think the changing of the setting is like a phenomenal choice. I love it when a TV show does this, where it reinvents itself every season. And it works so well when you start with the setting. Uh, And I think that this town is so fascinating because there's like a Disneyland Epcot Center type thing about it, where it's like a total tourist attraction. But then like there's so many odd things that go on there where you start placing together going like well why are these things happening is it because it's the only place that survived the uh the departure so now they like have to keep the routines up to to make things work to make sure that the departure doesn't happen again in their town and like the all the weirdness that goes on with that and the fascination of, like the tourists taking photos with their phones of all these things but while still like People exist in this town. This is their where they live every day. I think that like intersection of that in Miracle is so fascinating. And it builds so quietly in this first episode. I say quietly, but then a guy oh, yeah. does execute a goat uh, inside <laughs> of a cafe for while everyone's having breakfast. But, you know, my favourite thing about that scene is, which is a weird way to lead into mm. it, but the thing that's fascinating about that scene is the way... The locals just kind of go, oh, yeah. Enrique, here we go can again. Come clean up this mess. 
<laughs> Can you sort this out? Like this guy does this all the time and they're just kind of fine with it. You know, it's the guy up the pole mm-hmm. who Michael goes and feeds. Once again, nice little character building with Michael. You can tell that he's a good young man. He goes and feeds that guy mm-hmm. in the morning and at night. He goes and checks on someone else that we don't know who that person is at the moment, yeah. but he just goes to see if he wants to pray. It's funny. There's a real kind of knowing moment with John when Michael reads at uh, the church and then, you know, the dad's like, why'd you choose that? And he's like, I didn't. It was the next thing to read, you know, and you're just going, oh, well, there's a lot going on in the back of his head, you know, and that's why he's uh, projecting. But even what's going on with, you know, Regina King's character, Erica, going for a run and there's a bird, like, how long's that been in that box yeah. as well? And was it was it dead when she put it in there? And then now she's opened it up and it's come to life. Was it alive the whole time? That seems kind of cruel as well. Mm-hmm. They're a fascinating uh, family, and you very early on really understand them. Even if even if John kind of freaks me out a little bit, he's the kind of guy that I feel like I've spent my whole life avoiding yeah. as a kid, <laughs> as as a grown up, and. You know, Erica's interesting because you kind of like her a bit more, but she's, you know, kind of on her husband's side. Like, she's a little bit dismissive of Isaac, even though he does freak her out when uh, when he reveals, hey, I told him something bad's going to happen and he can't avoid it. You know, it's just such a melting pot of all these different ideas and these different beliefs. And then suddenly Matt Jamison turns up and you think, well... This isn't going to end well because yeah. <laughs> Matt is, you know, of all the believers that we have in this series, he is the ultimate and true believer. And already there's mystery involved in Matt being there and what his experience is yeah. there being hinted at. And then the Garvey's coming in. All of it is so fascinating. Yeah. Watching the wave at the start as well, that's something for people watching the series to... It's just a small thing, but remember the wave mm. between uh, Kevin and John. Yeah. Uh, is is Nora potentially the best character in TV of all time? <laughs> I love she her would so be much. up there. She's up there with Tony Soprano and every other yeah. character from The Sopranos, actually. She's up there. <laughs> but I would say that about could- so many characters in this show. Like, I think Regina King's yeah. character in this show is so good and so fascinating. I yeah. think Evie is fascinating. I think, like, Matt is fascinating. Everyone in this show, like, because they, they, like, pl- they all play with archetypes in, like, this present day in a way that is, like, so casual that I think it's quite revolutionary what they do with this. Yeah. The uh, Kevin Garvey mm. is a fascinating character as well, uh, especially, especially, you know, he's obviously come from a background where he has a domineering father. He probably recognises aspects of his father in John yeah. in some ways. And maybe some you know. ways himself as well. Absolutely. Like, it's it's funny when John, you know, casually makes a joke about being in prison. Yeah. And Nora's happy to move on. But John's like, you know, you probably want to ask me. And Kevin's like, you know, yeah, I do want to ask you. Because it's, it's fascinating just watching these two families testing each other, mm. trying to work each other out. And it's great when Evie makes the joke to Jill about, you know, did your mum fuck a black yeah. man to get that baby? And, like, Michael is so mortified. 
but Jill has been through a lot and she just laughs because yeah. she doesn't give a shit. It's just a funny line. And also, so like, how is she going to explain it? Like, she's not my mum. It's not our baby. It's not their baby. It's my <laughs> brother's baby that it's not actually his. And, like, you know, crazy how you could even do it. <laughs> You know what? I'll just laugh. Yeah. It'll just be easier. Exactly. This will be much uh, a much better way to move forward. Um, there's so much to kind of unpack um, unpack with this, but uh, you know, is there is there anything in particular that really stood out to you that, uh, especially with this rewatch, uh, was there anything that kind of came up that you'd forgotten apart from the fact that the <laughs> opening sequence was only nine minutes and not the whole episode (laughs) well apart from that i would say i also completely forgot about the bird box i i I, yeah i'm almost curious to keep watching because i have no memory of like what that is and now i'm like oh that's a mystery that's hooked me in that's a mystery yeah it's funny i'd forgotten the bird box as well and i would also say that i completely forgot uh, that uh, the John Murphy character is the father of that family, right? I forgot that he yeah. goes around, like, expelling people. I forgot about that. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that yeah. fire brigade sequence is... It's kind of pretty scary. Like, it's it's, it's really, really moving. Yeah. It's really scary. It's, like, puts you on edge the whole time of, like, who this character is. What is he doing? Why is he doing this? Uh, so... That's something that I was completely surprised by as well. Yeah. Mimi Lita uh, is one of the all-time great directors, isn't Mm. she? She just constantly makes great episodes of television. And uh, before I let you go, what were you more excited by? Seeing that there was a letter being sent to Sydney or the fact that the actor from Perfect Strangers turned up in Mexico. It's got to be that Perfect Strangers thing. Because like I told you last time, that when you told me about the Perfect Strangers joke, I was like, okay, I'm going to check yeah. this show out. And then seeing it be paid, like begin to be paid off in like a way that is yeah. quite meaningful. Man, that rocks. Yeah. I love that. When a joke can turn into something quite meaningful, uh, that's good yes. storytelling. And Lindelof does it like no one else. Mate, something that is just there to make you laugh suddenly gets a little bit of resonance yeah. and then everyone will be wrapped in season three. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, man. Well, what I also love, before I, uh, leaving you on this, what I also love is that this is a big swing for an episode of TV and it's not even the biggest swing of this series. Mm. I know, right? So... Pretty cool. You know, it's a great got- show. It's a great show. Uh, yeah, I love it. And uh, as I said, even re-watching it, I always get to the end and feel weirdly emotional. Like I've really had a lot of feelings and thoughts and ideas kind of brought to the surface. But I also find it uh, to be completely inspiring because it makes you go, you know what, you can create stuff that is moving and funny and silly and dramatic and at times horrific mm. it, it it can all be done and it all happens in this goddamn series <laughs> Uh, Alexi, thank you very much uh, for jumping on. Uh, we'll have to have you back. You know, you pick the episodes that you want to discuss with me. You know what's coming <laughs> yeah. up. Yeah, I don't know. It's been and, a long time since I've watched it now. So it's hard to remember. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll throw some episodes your way and I'll uh, I'll give you a plenty of uh, heads up. Uh, 
what can people catch you doing in uh, at the moment, apart from your regular podcast? Uh, well, I'm doing the Big Film Buffet for Netflix Australia and New Zealand. Uh, it's me and Jen Fricker giving you what to watch, what to watch recommendations for your weekend of like movies that are just coming out on Netflix, and that's two episodes a week. So we do one where we give you the recommendations, and then on a Tuesday we will talk about things that we are obsessed with in popular culture. So it's a really fun podcast, Great. and I love doing it. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. All right. Thank you, Alexi. My pleasure, dude. get into the squid bits part of the show. Uh, Peter Berg's name goes up as an image of an American football player appears representing someone who departed. Berg helped create and develop the TV series Friday Night Lights. And this makes me wonder if Matt Saracen departed in the world of the leftovers. Ah, Matt Saracen. Ah, maybe we should do (laughs) Friday Night Lights. If if you've never watched Friday Night Lights um, and you have father issues... (laughs) Watch it. It's so good. It's so good. Uh, just, it'll just be me crying at the end of every episode. Anyway, uh, Reza Aslan, as I told you, is brought on as a consultant. Uh, Lindelof has said that Peter Weir movies, Picnic at Hanging Rock and Last Wave, were big influences on The Leftovers. The letter that the uh, Tower Man writes for the guy in Sydney is addressed to David Burton. David Burton is the name of Richard Chamberlain's character in The Last Wave. The story Erica tells about the water overflowing in the bathtub, including the detail about the water trickling down the stairs, is almost certainly a tribute to a similar scene that occurs early in The Last Wave. The disappearance of the girls and the aftermath in Picnic at Hanging Rock are inspirations for this season as well. Uh, Banners in the church quotes scripture that references water, which seems appropriate. The Garveys move to a national park, which calls back to the National Geographic magazine, which has a cover story about the 100-year anniversary of Yellowstone, the world's first national park. The books stacked on John while he sleeps are books about Nelson Mandela, Lenin, Richard Nixon, Stalin and Cesar Chavez and the new American Revolution. So, gee whiz, isn't he a barrel of laughs? The news report about Mark Lynn Baker being spotted in the village in Chihuahua shows a clip from the Perfect Strangers episode, Hello Baby, which is the episode Kevin Sr. is watching in Kevin Jr.'s dream in that last episode of season one. Evie has a poster for Immaculate Machine and The Goblins in her room, and Jill had posters for both of these, although Jill had The Evaporators, which is The Goblins under a different name. Check out the goblins doing shittin' on the dock of the bay on YouTube for a real treat. Uh, the idea of Jardin and Miracle was originally planned for season one. Tom and Christine were going to stop in a town that hadn't experienced a departure, but as their story progressed and other storylines took precedent, this was initially dropped. Lindelof and Parada hadn't discussed any ideas about season two after the experience Damon had on Lost. When the uh, they signed for a new season, they realised that Nora's letter at the end of season one was still applicable and that despite finding a baby, they should leave town. They then returned to this idea to, of the town that hadn't lost anybody to set up this new season. The opening cavewoman sequence was inspired by ideas from Reza Aslan who talked about the earliest religions... Uh, were people in caves looking up at birds in the sky. So that's interesting. At the tourist stands in Miracle, Michael's stand is number 121. This is also the number of the question that Nora had a 100% response to in the episode Guest. Uh, 
Darius McCrary, who plays Isaac, is best known for playing Eddie Winslow on the sitcom Family Matters, which began as a spin-off of Perfect Strangers. Mark Lynn Baker auditioned for a role in the first season, but was rejected because it had already been decided he'd departed. Ah, what a bummer. Uh, That's funny though, right? Uh, You can hear the commercial for The Loved Ones in this episode. The Loved Ones, of course, were the you know, the uh, mannequins that were made to look like those who departed. Uh, The DSD seal on the Garvey's new house says Manu Di or Manu Dai, which is Latin for Hand of God. The new main titles are reminiscent of the Guilty Remnants Christmas Day PowerPoint presentation in the book where departed individuals have been clumsily deleted from photos and Jerry's goat killing is inspired by a passage in the book where Nora passes a man ritualistically slicing a sheep's throat while she's on a bike ride. What a bummer of a bike ride that'd be. (laughs) Uh, That does it for today. I'm excited to dig into this season and there's... Two things coming up in this season that I cannot wait to discuss with you. They're towards the end of the season. Oh, they're so good. I like this whole season is a scorcher, but those two things in particular, I am pumped. Thank you to Alexi Toliopoulos for swinging by to share some thoughts on this episode. You can see Alexi along with Tom Gleeson, Rove McManus, Richard Feidler, Alice Fraser and Lafoypierre. AJ Lamarck, Ben Elwood, and Georgia Mooney this Sunday, May 2nd, 5 p.m. at Giant Dwarf, where I'll be hosting our latest live Big Squid show. We'd love to see you there if you can make it. So head to giantdwarf.com.au for more details. If you have time to leave a top review on Apple Podcasts, please do so. Uh, it really helps spread the word and uh, helps us get into a position where we can do this uh on a more regular basis even, you know, that would be the nice place to end up. Uh, Also, remember you can join our private page to talk about all your thoughts on this series and anything else you might fancy with me and the rest of the gang. We'd love to hear your ideas there as well. We've mentioned Reza Aslan a bit today, so let's finish with a quote from him. Religion doesn't make people bigots. People are bigots and they use religion to justify their ideology. Until then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.